0: Today I'm privileged to have Nick Gilson of Gilson Snow. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be
0: here. Nick, we're on the campus of Johns Hopkins University at uh, a Hatch Conference. Yeah, absolutely. So you were one of the keynote speakers. It really intrigued me. One of the things you talked about was the importance of failure being a great lesson. And I know we're supposed to start off with how amazing you guys
1: are and what you built, (laughs) but that really struck a chord, because failure is where we learn. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way in God's green earth we'd be here today if it weren't for the failures along the way. Give me an example of uh, when you realized you were making a mistake, a failure. first major business failure was a belief that I had an assumption that we could grow this company in the traditional paths. That we could build this company to the success that some of our competitors had that had started a decade or two decades or more before us. People that have an established brand name. Exactly. And already have a channel in place. Absolutely. But what we found is that the retail and distribution side of the industry completely rejected us. Now at this time we are in our 1976 Airstream trailer and our Ram truck with 212,000 miles on it, traveling the country from coast to coast, doing free demos and letting people test out our our boards at at mountains across the country. And it was very clear that that demographic, the skiers and riders themselves, were responding in hugely positive ways to they our equipment. The they and loved the boards. The grassroots stuff was Absolutely working great. Them. Yeah, and the boards looked like garbage at this point. They were minimum viable products. I mean, they were practically falling apart. They had no artwork on. Them them, um, but people were loving the way they performed.
0: So you took that uh, information and you went to the retailer saying, hey, carry out boards. And what was the reaction you were getting?
1: The reaction was, this is too weird. This is too different. I remember one retailer in particular told me that the company would be Dead and gone before he grew out of our our daddy's basement, I believe is what he said. <laughs> Even though we were in a donkey and horse stable at the time, that did not belong to my dad. Because <laughs> he had self respect, he wouldn't own yeah, something. Yeah, like you know, that. it's just this idea that this is a very young company. It's this group of kids. You're right. gonna fail before you know it. Why would I invest in you and you? Yeah, exactly. And, and I harbored this belief that we had to pursue that channel, otherwise the company would fail.
0: So what was the moment of epiphany where you realized that, uh, hey, wait a minute, we need to change something. What was that pivot point?
1: Well, it came after about eighteen months of our team of nine, ten people at the time basically beating our heads against the wall, cold calling retailers. And we, we started out with lists of thousands, and then we, were, you know, we realized that maybe we need to focus and really build meaningful relationships because business is built on relationships. So we started to focus on the ones that we really cared about, and we went and, and rode with them. We went and skied with them. We rode lifts with them. Um, we had you know drinks after the the ski day, you know, operate drinks with them, and we built these relationships and we made great friends and still nothing. So the shotgun approach did not work. The, the relationship the building did not The romance seduction work. didn't yeah, work. It did not work. People were not, retailers I should say, were not responding to our work whatsoever. What pivot did you take? What did you do differently to turn things around? So after about 18 months, it became clear that no matter how long we did this, no matter how hard we tried, we were not going to be successful through this avenue. And so at that moment, it was the first sort of company-wide memorandum, if you will, that we put out that basically said nobody is to spend a second of their time or a penny of company money pursuing a retail relationship. It's over. We're not doing it. We then took our group of nine, ten exceptionally talented, smart people and got them off the phones and then they started to, to work on figuring out how then are we going to connect with our community. If not through distributors, wholesalers, retailers. How do you go direct? There's gotta be a different way to do it. So so what did that look like? So there's a huge barrier to entry there, and that's that we're we're manufacturing skis and snowboards. So these things are they're big. They're long. They have a curvature. So the box that actually needs to contain a snowboard, say, to a doorstep- It's way more expensive to ship. It's hugely expensive, yeah, because the nose and tail curve up. So the actual box that needs to be packaging this thing is actually pretty tall. Even though the snowboard itself is really thin, because right. of the curvature mm-hmm. the box, you're, it's a five inches tall. And so you're mainly shipping air. And so at the time, the average cost direct to doorstep was something like $180 for wow. a $500 product, totally cost prohibitive. And so what we figured out, though, in this moment, when we stopped wasting our time calling retailers, barking up the original channels in the industry, was that if we took a really thin piece of cardboard and put it on the top and a really thin piece of cardboard and we put it on the bottom, we could create kind of a a cardboard snowboard sock and it would use less material and there'd be no air inside. It It would follow the curvature of the board. And we figured that at these... These FedEx and UPS facilities are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. There's no way they've got a guy with a tape measure there measuring the dimensions of the box, right? They have these cross-sectional laser scanners, and as it turned out, we just tested it empirically. We we wrapped up a board in some cardboard like this, taped it up, and 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 sent it to an address nearby of uh, of someone that we knew, and to see what would happen. And in fact, what happened is that no matter where you measure along the curvature of the package. Because even though the package still takes up 5 inches of vertical height, no matter where you measure along the length of the package, the box is less than half an inch tall. Brilliant. And it dropped the shipping cost from $180 closer to $30 domestically, $60 internationally. And at that moment, we said, hey, look, we're going to build meaningful relationships with the community, and we're going to build skis and snowboards for riders and skiers directly, deliver them to their doorsteps globally, and we're going to pay the shipping. And so how did you build the audience?
0: Like you'd gone, did the grassroots, you met people on slopes, give it a test drive, but now you need to go broader. So how did you go broader and access that market?
1: Yeah, so historically the only way to do that would have been retail, and so we're very fortunate to have started this business in the age of the internet, and in the age of FedEx in the age of social media growth. Right. Because we had something that was and have something that was highly differentiated. It was, you know, it's it still to this day turns heads. People, um, it's like a unicorn on the mountain. In the last three hundred and sixty-five days, I think our global reach is over twenty million, but still there are only a couple thousand of these things out there. So right. when people find them on the mountain, it's like, oh my God, let me. This is our number one customer complaint is that is that they can't go through a lift line without getting hassled <laughs> by all the other people to That's see the cool. bottom of the board great problem to have and so and so because of that uh, those key functional points of differentiation and because we had a uh, a snowboard that people just were having more fun riding our community became incredibly talkative and it was small at first but they started sharing their experiences with other people. Yeah, they were evangelists of the brand. And our social media accounts started to grow very much organically and we started to take a lot of our key messaging and share it on, on the internet via social media. And the really cool thing was is that we weren't just a software brand with an online presence. We were actually tangibly manufacturing something on American soil traveling the country and sharing it in in-person interactions and then we were capturing those interactions and then sharing those online exactly so we weren't just in this cyberspace we were really tying a a a pretty strong tether between the real world and the digital world so before we go back to the beginnings of the company I heard in your
0: presentation that you guys are actually have an international presence now so it's not just domestic US
1: New Zealand Australia, yep. That's what we started in New Zealand, Australia. My father is a New Zealander, and much of my family still lives there. Oh, that uh, My easy. immediate family's in the states, so I personally had, have an affinity for New Zealand. And uh, I've been and there; it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful place. Oh, it, I think my uh, my real appreciation for the outdoors is certainly rooted in America, but also very much tied to New Zealand as well. The, the interesting thing, though, is that it's on the other other side of the world. So when you're in a seasonal business, and it helps winter to have two winters. Name, it helps <laughs> to have two winters, right? And so. So right now we're recording this in the spring. We're we're just uh, seeing our northern hemisphere season taper, and we're starting to watch the orders come in from New Zealand and Australia.
0: Brilliant! Uh, my wife and I went to New Zealand, and uh, amazing waterfalls. Yep. And after the third day there, look, honey, is a waterfall. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's so amazing how quickly we went from like total awe to we've yeah. seen one too many.
1: Well, there's good wine for when you get bored with the waterfalls. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs>
0: One of uh, the things that really uh, intrigued me was your story of uh, leaving Johns Hopkins Mm -hmm. and being a school teacher, was it in Tennessee? Yeah, it was in Nashville, Tennessee. And so you've got a bunch of elementary school kids, and uh, to inspire them you wanted them to have a passion so you actually designed a curriculum for education that's actually being replicated right now even though you've left years ago Mm -hmm. tell us about what brought you to the point where you had to actually get inspired these kids in a different way throw away the curriculum that the school board wanted create a new one and part of that was having this passion that last year tell me about that
1: yeah, it's a great question. So, so Austin, my now business partner, and I—he was teaching seventh and eighth grade. I was teaching fifth and sixth, and we were confronted with the same problem, which is that the you know, the most amazing group of kids with the hugest range in past education and, and ability. And so, we'd have a student in one seat who is reading at a kindergarten level while they're in middle school. And the student next to them is reading chapter books on a college level. And the next kid over is learning English for the first time. And the next seat over, there's a student named Abdo Basset asking me theoretical physics questions of objects entering black holes from different reference frames. And you know, it begs the question, how do we teach one class to reach all these students and to create gains across the board? And it was a major challenge. And the way that we answered that was with this sense of unity that we're all in this together. If one of us fails, we all fail. And secondly, we're going to address this with hands-on learning so that students ahead can be teaching students behind and vice versa, reinforcing concepts uh, in an all-encompassing way. Which is perfect because
0: you uh, don't realize uh, what you know until you're teaching it and the depth of learning and mastery of the subject doesn't come from knowing, it comes from teaching.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Really so
0: is. how did you get buy-in from uh, establishment at the school? Because this sounds like <laughs> weird. sure we ever did. <laughs> so just do it and ask for permission later? Yeah,
1: you know, the, the amazing thing is, as a teacher, once that classroom door swings shut, you, you have do complete what you total autonomy. Yeah, and so I had a set of beliefs about how we would make the, the greatest gains. And and when Austin and I first started, we had an average classroom proficiency of 18%, percent right. 18 1, 8 And so... Clearly, the system wasn't working, right? And so we had to adapt and we had to bring, our, uh, bring new concepts to the table because we didn't need to teach one year's worth in one year. We needed to teach four years in some cases in one year.
0: Right. So you gave them, uh, I guess, monthly projects... Mm-hmm. And daily projects. Yep, absolutely. And then the year-long curiosity. project. Tell me about that year-long curiosity project, because that was the uh, the spark that helped you kind of relaunch your company and do something yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so the idea was that uh, I, I brought in the the, the prototype, the fr- proto one, the first one that I built when I was in middle school. Your snowboard. Yep, first uh, prototype snowboard, and it was totally rudimentary. It's built out of plywood and you know, a little bit of fiberglass and. Uh, But the idea is there that it's designed in three dimensions with fluid dynamics in mind, although exceptionally rudimentary. And I said, you know, I held this board and I said, this is what I was thinking about when I was your age. This is what I was going to school and and daydreaming about or doodling about in the classroom. This is what was really getting me going. This is what I was looking forward to getting home to work on. And so in this year-long curiosity project, I I encouraged each student to Find something. There was no criteria. They just had to find something that they really cared about, that they really wanted to pursue, and they had to have a question around something that really meant something to them. So, give me an example of some of their projects. Great question. We had um, one of my favorite ones was um, a student who pursued a project on dreams, and and trying to better understand what What dreams are and how they impact our conscious reality. So something that wouldn't be coming out of a, you know, a middle school classroom otherwise, I don't think.
0: No, not at all. And I, and I love that because ultimately getting someone to be passionate about American history, I mean, get a gun to my head, end it right. all now. <laughs> but if you get somebody like uh, one of my friend's kids, he became obsessed with Egypt yeah. and he just did a deep dive himself. Every conversation you ever had was about the pharaohs and this, but he knew the subject really deeply because his passion for it. And what you're really teaching is people, A, find your passion, but this is how you learn. And just they build their own model of how learning can be fun.
1: Right. And I think in the historical school model where we're forced to still be taking tests with pencil and paper, mind you, the classrooms still look the same now as they they did a hundred years ago, right? In the time when we've put people into space and we've connected billions of people globally with devices in our pockets. I mean, we're still teaching with pencil and paper. Um, And we're also giving four of the answer choices and just telling kids to bubble them in. I mean, we're creating 20th century factory workers if we don't change what we're doing here. You
0: know, the world's changing. So for you, uh, the other thing I like is that uh, leaders have to walk their talk. And you were saying, hey, if you follow your project, I'm going to follow my project and build a better snowboard.
1: Yeah, and we certainly got carried away, right? I mean, we started this out in the name of education that we were developing this snowboard as our year, Austin and I, as our year-long curiosity project. And that, and it would be used as an example to show kids what product development looks like, what it means to start with an idea and a concept and then take it through the stages of prototyping and the scientific hypothesis and and all of this, right? And, you know, what ended up happening is that it it was a total failure. We actually built two snowboards and it took us the better part of two months to do it and took them out to Colorado and they were awful. They
0: were awful and what was interesting was uh, you had mentioned that when every leader comes to this point where it's easier to give up. Uh, You had gotten in front of the class. Tell me about the time you told them like okay I'm giving up on this project because I think that's a an important lesson for everyone listening.
1: Yeah you, you know I in hindsight, it wasn't exactly fair, and I think that's what the students were reacting to. But I told them that, "Hey, look, this idea failed, um, or at least the execution did. Right? There's two pieces: there's the idea and the execution. At least the execution has failed, and we're gonna we're gonna call it quits." But all of the students in my class, I told them that they were still responsible for their year-long projects, but that... Don't we were, do what
0: I do, do what I tell yeah, you. Yeah, right,
1: but we're calling it quits on ours. And, I mean, think about how unfair that's got to sound to to a, a middle schooler who's been told that our big goal of the class is to be the fastest-growing fifth-grade science class in all of Nashville, right? I mean, these kids are united at this stage in the school year around this idea of being the fastest-growing class and that we're all doing this together. And if one of us fails, we all fail. And here are the teachers saying we're done. We're tossing in the towel. Kids are crying. This, this kid, Cassius, I, I will always remember him for this and be so thankful for this moment. But he raises his hand, and he, he says, Mr. Gilson, if you can quit, we can quit. And it was the most humbling thing. I mean, no one will humble you faster than a fifth grader. So can I make a suggestion? Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the
0: upcoming boards in the future of the company should be called a Cassius. <laughs> the
1: Cassius board, yeah, I like
0: that. And there's a great story behind it. And I think ultimately, uh, we will give up for ourselves quite easily. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you have 30 kids in the classroom, that if you give up, there's a good chance that a lot of them are going to give up on life. Right. So for your responsibility for them, is that what
1: kept you going? Yeah, absolutely, I mean, what could I do? I was totally floored. I went back to the drawing boards, we detailed all of the failings in the engineering, and we came up with four potential solutions with our, with our students to how we could address each one of these. And the amazing thing is that out of that exercise, out of those conversations, we invented the soft edge. And that is what has made us successful today. And so, you know, I think really successful ideas can come from only one of two places. And it's never one and done. You know, it's either from, it's the culmination of all of the lessons learned during repeated failure. Right. Or it's from a total accident. But that's where inventions come from. There's never, you know, there's never just a one and done moment. One of my favorite quotes is that it takes years to become an overnight success.
0: I mean, ask any band that's made it. Mm -hmm. Overnight success, I'll say, yeah, 12 years of dive bars and
1: bikers,
0: (laughs) but yeah, it was overnight. Yeah, exactly. So let me tell you one of my failures, and this question intrigues me to no end, and I heard it in your presentation. I'll kind of tie it back to your presentation. I started to get my private pilot's license. No way. You're there what, with Sessna the Cessna 152. Cessna nice. 152, that's the one. Yeah. And after nine hours or 10 hours, I did my solo perfectly. And then it was like, you you did go your fly. fly. And so that's amazing. But if you don't have a destination to go, after a while, it's like the waterfalls. Like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of boring now. But there was this one intriguing thing that was amazing. You needed 4,500 feet of uh, space between you and the ground. And you would uh, give your plane full throttle. And then start pulling up the stick so you go higher and higher at a steep climb. And at some point, the stall. engine isn't powerful enough to fly and it stalls. And as it falls out of the sky, if you give it full rudder, you are going to a tailspin, right? Or you... Tailspin, dive, full throttle towards the ground, spinning out of control. And then <laughs> what you do is the first thing you do is you cut power yeah. so you're not accelerating towards the ground.
1: Wait, how's this one of your failures? You're still here well, talking I'm, I'm to, getting
0: to me. To the, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> Once you kill the power, you're still going towards the ground spinning, you give opposite rudder to stop the rotation. Mm-hmm. And then once you stop, then you just pull back the stick and it bleeds off the speed of the airplane and you level out and everything's okay and you can get full power and you're okay. But you need 4,500 feet to do that. Yeah. Exciting.
1: 10,000 if you're smart.
0: <laughs> but they've got this second rule. And the second rule is you can't fly instruments yet. You're just learning. So never, IFR, ever, hard, ever right? go above the clouds. So okay. one day, because I'm bored, I'm flying, and the clouds are about 2,400, 2,500 feet. And I've got two rules in my head. You must have 4,500 feet of space to do this maneuver. Yeah. The other rule, which is not as important, don't go above the clouds. So I follow the cloud rule and not the 4,500-foot rule. I saw grass blades. That's how close I came to oh my God. to buying the farm. So what intrigues me is sometimes we have two rules inside our head— And we follow one rule when we should be following the other. Mm -hmm. And in your presentation, what it actually resonated with, you were talking about, you know, it's the technology of the board is the most important, and I don't want any stinking graphics on my board. (laughs) It should not be even an option in thinking. So you had those two rules. One is, you know, the purity of the science and then the market reality of no one's buying. So tell me about that contradiction where you finally had to go, wait a minute, we need pretty boards as well. Not only the the engineering of it, uh, but also the look of it.
1: Yeah, it's that was because uh, you
0: held on to the I'm not I'm not bending my way.
1: Yeah, you know, and and and. It's it's actually a great story. When we were making the minimum viable product, and right as we got beyond that, we started to get pretty good at construction Mm -hmm. and pretty good at developing the right flex profiles and boards that were performing in the way that we wanted them to. Uh, But we had not, at that time, focused at all on the aesthetics, other than having them have a high quality of construction. And at this stage, I was very adhered to this idea that people should be buying snowboards and skis based on how they perform, not on how they look. In hindsight, I think that that may have been because I did not know how to put graphics on a snowboard at the time, and so it was a convenient belief to hold. Um, But we played that out over a while, and it was very clear that the market was giving us the feedback that people wanted boards that had an artistic and an aesthetic character to them. They really wanted to see Snowboards and skis that were a canvas for an artist as opposed to just being one solid color. So I think there's three things, uh, three words that are really important to me.
0: One is being relevant, mm-hmm. being relevant to your employees, being relevant to your customers, and that's an example of not being relevant. Right. The second thing is integrity. of what you truly stand for and maintaining it. And then the third one is focus. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's what you're doing right now at uh, your company is you're relevant to your audience, Mm -hmm. you're focused, you know who your market is, and then you've got uh, this integrity to make sure you guys deliver high quality products in the best possible way.
1: Absolutely, and the only way we got there is that in that moment, uh, you know you need to know when to pivot and when to hold your ground, and it's not always obvious and that was a moment where we very clearly needed to pivot as a company and I went to our team and and i and I admitted that I was wrong, and I was vulnerable in that instance, and I said, "You know we've really been driving this train pretty hard, but i'm I'm wrong here, and I've been wrong here, and I need to listen to what." you guys and girls think because we need to shift direction. You know, I I think that it wasn't um, anything that was planned, but the reality is, is that level of vulnerability builds so much trust. Absolutely,
0: and uh, it seems like a paradox, but it really isn't. Right. Last question for you.
1: How many employees do you have? So between full and part-time, we're right around 20.
0: So about 20 employees. As a leader, a co-leader for this organization,
1: What's your biggest fear? Hmm. (laughs) That's a great question. I think my biggest fear is that, you know, if the market's not, it used to be that if the market's not ready for this, we'll get that feedback and, and we'll fail. If, you know, we don't deliver in terms of building equipment that's really great, you know, we'll fail and we deserve it. And at this stage, we've gotten to the point where we've proven that the market's ready for us. We've proven that we can carve out meaningful market share. We've proven that we can have incredibly positive interactions with our community and build really meaningful relationships. So now we're at a point where if this doesn't go the way we want it to, if this is not as successful as we think it can be, that's internal. And that's scary because there are a lot of people at this stage that depend on us for their own personal careers, their own livelihoods. Yeah. You know, there are people with families in this business. Huh,
0: maybe you can start a new uh, thought process, the Cassius imperative. Yeah. That how do we... <laughs> yeah. s- Hold
1: yeah. up to what if we you quit, to we can quit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, that that is a, it's a daunting thought, but it's also highly motivating. You know, it's important to be involved in a line of work where people care. And I'm very lucky to be in a place where my team and the people that, that make up this organization really care about the work that they do and... I'm very fortunate to be in, in in a role where the people that make up our organization really care about the work that they do, and they really care about our community. And we're very fortunate to be to be building an environment where our community really cares about the work that we're doing. So, Brilliant. it's important. Nick, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Umar, thank you so much for having me on the show.